15. G sign. According as the load advances from the left or the right, the bracing bars, therefore, for this part of the girder must be adapted to resist either tension or thrust. Further, the range of stress to which they are subjected is the sum of the stresses due to the load advancing from the left or the right. 25. Greatest shear when concentrated loads travel over the bridge. To find the greatest shear with a set of concentrated loads at fixed distances, let the loads advance from the left abutment, and let C be the section at which the shear is required. Figure 44. The greatest shear at C may occur with W1 at C. If W1 passes beyond C the shear at C will probably be greatest when W2 is at C. Let R be the resultant of the loads on the bridge when W1 is at C. Then the reaction at the end shear at C is R and L. Next let the loads advance a distance so that W2 comes to C. Then the shear at C is R and L W1. Plus any reaction D at P due to any additional load which has come on the girder during the movement. The shear will therefore be increased by bringing W2 to C if L D W1 and D is generally small and negligible. This result is modified if the action of the load near the section is distributed to the bracing intersections by rail and cross girders. In figure 45 the action of W is distributed to A and B by the flooring. Then the loads at A and B are WPXP and WXP. Now let's see figure 46 be the section at which the greatest shear is required. And let the loads advance from the left till W1 is at C. If R is the resultant of the loads then on the girder, the reaction at the end shear at C is R and L. But the shear may be greater when W2 is at C. In that case the shear at C becomes R and L D W1. If a P and R and a L D W1 a P if a P. If we neglect D then the shear increases by moving W2 to C if R L W1 in the first case. And if R L W1 a P in the second case. 26. Greatest bending moment due to traveling concentrated loads. For the greatest bending moment due to a traveling live load. Let a load of W per fort run advance from the left abutment figure 47. And let its center be at X from the left abutment. The reaction at P is to WX squared L and the bending moment at any section C at M from the left abutment is to WX squared LML which increases as X increases till the span is covered. Hence, for uniform traveling loads, the bending moments are greatest when the loading is complete. In that case the loads on either side of C are proportional to M and LM. In the case of a series of traveling loads at fixed distances apart passing over the girder from the left, let W1. W2 figure 48, at distances X and X from the left abutment, be their resultants on either side of C. Then the reaction at P is W1XL W2XL. The bending moment at C is MW1XL MW2M1XL. If the loads are moved a distance delta X to the right, the bending moment becomes M delta MW1X delta XL MW2M1X delta XL delta MW1 delta XL MW2 delta XML and this is positive or the bending moment increases. If W1 liter MW2M, or if W1 meter W2 liters M, but these are the average loads per fort run to the left and right of C hence. If the average load to the left of a section is greater than that to the right. The bending moment at the section will be increased by moving the loads to the right, and vice versa. Hence the maximum bending moment at C for a series of traveling loads will occur when the average load is the same on either side of C. If one of the loads is at C spread over a very small distance in the neighborhood of C then a very small displacement of the loads will permit the fulfillment of the condition. Hence the criterion for the position of the loads which makes the moment at C greatest is this, one load must be at C and the other loads must be distributed. 
so that the average loads per fort on either side of C. The load at C being neglected are nearly equal. If the loads are very unequal in magnitude or distance this condition may be satisfied for more than one position of the loads, but it is not difficult to ascertain which position gives the maximum moment. Generally one of the largest of the loads must be at C with as many others to right and left as is consistent with that condition. This criterion may be stated in another way. The greatest bending moment will occur with one of the greatest loads at the section, and when this further condition is satisfied, let figure 49 represent a beam with the series of loads traveling from the right. Let a BBV.04 P.055 to the section considered, and let WX be the load at a B when the bending moment there is greatest, and WN the last load to the right then on the bridge. Then the position of the loads must be that which satisfies the condition XW1 W2. WX1 greater than LW1 W2. WNXW1 W2. WX less than LW1 W2. WN figure 50 shows the curve of bending moment under one of a series of traveling loads at fixed distances. Let W1, W2, W3 traverse the girder from the left at fixed distances AB for the position shown the distribution of bending moment due to W1 is given by ordinates of the triangle at that due to W2 by ordinates of it and that due to W3 by ordinates ed. The total moment at W1, due to three loads, is the sum MCMMO of the intercepts which the triangle sides cut off from the vertical under W1. As the loads move over the girder, the points CDE describe the parabolas M1, M2, M3, the middle ordinates of which are 1 for W1L, 1 for W2L, and 1 for W3L. If these are first drawn it is easy, for any position of the loads, to draw the lines BC, BD, B, and to find the sum of the intercepts which is the total bending moment under a load. The lower portion of the figure is the curve of bending moments under the leading load. Till W1 has advanced a distance and only one load is on the girder, and the curve A double quote F gives bending moments due to W1 only, as W1 advances to a distance of B two loads are on the girder and the curve FG gives moments due to W1 and W2. GB is the curve of moments for all three loads W1 W2 W3. Figure 51 shows maximum bending moment curves for an extreme case of a short bridge with very unequal loads. The three lightly dotted parabolas are the curves of maximum moment for each of the loads taken separately. The three heavily dotted curves are curves of maximum moment under each of the loads. For the three loads passing over the bridge, at the given distances, from left to right, as might be expected, the moments are greatest in this case at the sections under the 15-ton load. The heavy continuous line gives the last-mentioned curve for the reverse direction of passage of the loads. With short bridges it is best to draw the curve of maximum bending moments for some assumed typical set of loads in the way just described, and to design the girder accordingly. For longer bridges the funicular polygon affords a method of determining maximum bending moments which is perhaps more convenient, but very great accuracy in drawing this curve is unnecessary, because the rolling stock of railways varies so much that the precise magnitude and distribution of the loads which will pass over a bridge cannot be known. All that can be done is to assume a set of loads likely to produce somewhat severe or straining than any probable actual rolling loads. Now except for very short bridges and very unequal loads. A parabola can be found which includes the curve of maximum moments. This parabola is the curve of maximum moments for a traveling load uniform per fort run. Let WE be the load per fort run which would produce the maximum moments represented by this parabola. 
then WE may be termed the uniform load per Ford equivalent to any assumed set of concentrated loads. Waddell has calculated tables of such equivalent uniform loads, but it is not difficult to find WE approximately enough for practical purposes. Very simply, experience shows that a parabola having the same ordinate at the center of the span, or be a parabola having the same ordinate at one quarter span as the curve of maximum moments, agrees with it closely enough for practical designing. A criterion already given shows the position of any set of loads which will produce the greatest bending moment at the center of the bridge, or at one quarter span. Let MC and MA be those moments, that a section distant X from the center of a girder of span to C. The bending moment due to a uniform load WE per fort run is M1 to WECXCX cutting X0, for the center section MC1 to WX2, and putting X1 to C. For section at quarter span M of 38WX2. From these equations a value of WE can be obtained. Then the bridge is designed. So far as the direct stresses are concerned. For bending moments due to a uniform dead load and the uniform equivalent load WE27. Influence lines. In dealing with the action of traveling loads much assistance may be obtained by using a line termed an influence line. Such a line has for abscess if a distance of a load from one end of a girder and for ordinate the bending moment or shear at any given section, or on any member, due to that load. Generally the influence line is drawn for unit load. In figure 52 let it be a girder supported at the ends and let it be required to investigate the bending moment at C due to a unit load in any position on the girder. When the load is at F, the reaction at P is ML and the moment at C is MLXL which will be reckoned positive. When it resists a tendency of the right-hand part of the girder to turn counterclockwise, projecting a single quote F single quote C single quote P onto the horizontal lab, take FFMLXL the moment at C of unit load at F. If this process is repeated for all positions of the load, we get the influence line AGB for the bending moment at C. The area AGB is termed the influence area. The greatest moment CG at C is XLXL. To use this line to investigate the maximum moment at C due to a series of traveling loads at fixed distances, let page 1, page 2, page 3, be the loads which at the moment considered are at distances M1, M2, from the left abutment. Set off these distances along AB and let Y1, Y2, be the corresponding ordinates of the influence curve YFF on the verticals under the loads. Then the moment at C due to all the loads is M page 1 Y1 page 2 Y2. V.04P.0553 The position of the loads which gives the greatest moment at C may be settled by the criterion given above. For a uniform traveling load W per fort of span, consider a small interval of K delta M on which the load is W delta M. The moment due to this, that C is WMLX delta ML. But MLX delta ML is the area of the strip FFHK. That is why delta M hence the moment of the load on delta M at C is way delta M and the moment of a uniform load over any portion of the girder is WX the area of the influence curve under that portion. If the scales are so chosen that a inch represents one inch ton of moment, and B inch represents one foot of span, and W is in tons per fort run, then M is the unit of area in measuring the influence curve. If the load is carried by a rail girder stringer with cross girders at the intersections of bracing and boom, its effect is distributed to the bracing intersections figure 53, and the part of the influence line for that bay panel is altered, with unit load in the position shown. The load at D is PNP and that at E is NP. The moment of the load at C is MLXLNPNP. 
This is the equation to the dotted line RS figure 52. If the unit load is at F, the reaction at the end the shear at C is ML positive if the shearing stress resists a tendency of the part of the girder on the right to move upwards, set up FFML figure 54 on the vertical under the load, repeating the process for other positions, we get the influence line AGHP, for the shear at C due to a unit load anywhere on the girder, GCXLM chapter LXL, the lines AG, HP are parallel. If the load is in the bait and is carried by a rail girder which distributes it to cross girders at, the part of the influence line under this bay is altered. Let N figure 55 be the distance of the load from D. X1 the distance of D from the left abutment, and P the length of a bay. The loads at D, E due to a unit weight on the rail girder are P and P and NP. The reaction at P is P and X1 and X1 P place. The shear at C is the reaction at P less the load at E. That island PX1 and NL place which is the equation to the line DH figure 54. Clearly, the distribution of the load by the rail girder considerably alters the distribution of shear due to a load in the bay in which the section considered lies. The total shear due to a series of loads page 1, page 2. That distance is M1, M2, from the left abutment, Y1, Y2, being the ordinates of the influence curve under the loads, is S page 1 Y1 page 2 Y2. Generally, the greatest shear S at C will occur when the longer of the segments into which C divides the girder is fully loaded and the other is unloaded, the leading load being at C. If the loads are very unequal or unequally spaced, a trial or two will determine which position gives the greatest value of S. The greatest shear at C of the opposite sign to that due to the loading of the longer segment occurs with the shorter segment loaded. For a uniformly distributed load W per fort run the shear at C is WX the area of the influence curve under the segment covered by the load. Attention being paid to the sign of the area of the curve. If the load rests directly on the main girder, the greatest and shears at C will be WX AGC and WX CHP. But if the load is distributed to the bracing intersections by rail and cross girders, then the shear at C will be greatest when the load extends to N and will have the values WX Adian and WX Neb. An interesting paper by F.C. Lee, dealing with the determination of stress due to concentrated loads, by the method of influence lines will be found in PROC. Inst. C. Epoxy. P.261. Influence lines were described by Frenkel. Dear Civiling and Year. 1876. See also Handbook Dear Engineer Wissenschaften. Volume I. Chapter X 1882, and Levy, Lustig Graphic 1886. There is a full paper by Professor G. F. Swain Trans, M. Sock, C. E. S. B. 1887, and another by L. M. Hoskins Proc, M. Sock, C. E. X. X. B. 1899, 28, Eddie's Method, another method of investigating the maximum shear at a section due to any distribution of a traveling load has been given by Professor H. D. Eddie Trans. M. Sock. C. E. Z. 1890. Let H. K. Figure 56 represent in magnitude and position a load W at X from the left abutment. On a girder ab of span L layoff K. F. H. G. Horizontal and equal to L join F and G to H and K draw verticals at A B and join number obviously no as horizontal and equal to L. Also M N M F H K K F or M N W L X L which is the reaction at a due to the load at C and is the shear at any point of A C. Similarly, pose the reaction at E and shear at any point of CB. The shaded rectangles represent the distribution of shear due to the load at C while no may be termed the datum line of shear. 
let the load move to D so that its distance from the left abutment is XA draw a vertical at the intersecting FH. Kilograms in S and Q then WLXL which is the reaction at hand shear at any point of add. For the new position of the load. Similarly, RSWXL is the shear on decibels. The distribution of shear is given by the partially shaded rectangles. For the application of this method to a series of loads Professor Eddy's paper must be referred to. 29. Economic span. In the case of a bridge of many spans, there is a length of span which makes the cost of the bridge least. The cost of abutments and bridge flooring is practically independent of the length of span adopted. Let V be the cost of one pier, see the cost of the main girders for one span. Erected, and the number of spans, L the length of one span, and L the length of the bridge between abutments. Then, NLL nearly. Cost of piers and one P cost of main girders and the cost of a pier will not vary materially with the span adopted. It depends mainly on the character of the foundations and height at which the bridge is carried. The cost of the main girders for one span will vary nearly as the square of the span for any given type of girder and intensity of live load. That island GL squared, where is a constant. Hence the total cost of that part of the bridge which varies with the span adopted is CNIP no squared LPLP differentiating and equating to zero. The cost is least when DCLPL zero. DLL squared PL squared G. That island when the cost of one pair is equal to the cost erected of the main girders of one span. Sir Guilford Molesworth puts this in a convenient but less exact form. Let G be the cost of superstructure of a 100 feet span erected, and P the cost of one pair with its protection. Then the economic span is L100 root P root G30. Limiting span. If the weight of the main girders of a bridge, per fort run in tons, is W3W1W2LRKLR according to a formula already given. Then W3 becomes infinite if KLR0, or if LKRV.04 P.055 where L is the span in feet and R is the ratio of span to depth of girder at center. Taking K4 steel girders as 7200 to 9000, limiting span in Ford R12 liters 600 to 750 10 720 to 908 900 to 1120 in a three span bridge continuous girders are lighter than discontinuous ones by about 45 for the dead load and 15 for the live load if no allowance is made for ambiguity due to uncertainty as to the level of the supports the cantilever and suspended girder types are as economical and free from uncertainty as to the stresses in long-span bridges the cantilever system permits erection by building out, which is economical and sometimes necessary. It island however, and stable unless rigidly fixed at the piers. In the fourth bridge stability is obtained partly by the great excess of dead over live load, partly by the great width of the river piers. The majority of bridges not of great span have girders with parallel booms. This involves the fewest difficulties of workmanship and perhaps permits the closest approximation of actual to theoretical dimensions of the parts. In spans over 200 feet it is economical to have one horizontal boom and one polygonal approximately parabolic boom. The hog-backed girder is a compromise between the two types, avoiding some difficulties of construction near the ends of the girder. Most braced girders may be considered as built up of two simple forms of truss. The King Post Truss Figure 61 a or the queen post truss figure 61. B these may be used in either the upright or the inverted position. A multiple truss consists of a number of simple trusses, e.g. Bowman truss. Some timber bridges consist of queen post trusses in the upright position, as shown diagrammatically in figure 62, where the circles indicate points at which the flooring girders transmit load to the main girders. 
Compound trusses consist of simple trusses used as primary, secondary and tertiary trusses, the secondary supported on the primary, and the tertiary on the secondary. Thus, the Fink truss consists of King Coast trusses, the Pratt truss figure 63 and the Whipple truss figure 64 of Queen Coast trusses alternately upright and inverted. A combination bridge is built partly of timber, partly of steel, the compression members being generally of timber and the tension members of steel. On the Pacific coast, where excellent timber is obtainable and steel works are distant, combination bridges are still largely used on well. Trans. M. Sock. C. E. Shishbi. Page 467. The combination bridge at Roseburg, Oregon, is a cantilever bridge. The shore arms are 147 feet span. The river arms 105 feet and the suspended girder 80 feet the total distance between anchor piers being 584 feet. The floor beams, floor and railing are of timber. The compression members are of timber, except the struts and bottom cord panels next the river piers, which are of steel. The tension members are of iron and the pins of steel. The cord blocks and post shoes are of cast iron. 33. Graphic method of finding the stresses in braced structures. Figure 65 shows a common form of bridge truss known as a Warren girder, with lines indicating external forces applied to the joints, half the load carried between the two lower joints next the piers on either side is directly carried by the abutments. The sum of the two upward vertical reactions must clearly be equal to the sum of the loads. The lines in the diagram represent the directions of a series of forces which must all be in equilibrium. These lines may, for an object to be explained in the next paragraph be conveniently named by the letters in the spaces which they separate instead of by the method usually employed in geometry. Thus we shall call the first inclined line on the left hand the line AG, the line representing the first force on the top left hand joint AB, the first horizontal member at the top left hand the line BH, and C. Similarly each point requires at least three letters to denote it, the top first left hand joint may be called ABHG, being the point where these four spaces meet. In this method of lettering, every enclosed space must be designated by a letter, all external forces must be represented by lines outside the frame, and each space between any two forces must receive a distinctive letter. This method of lettering was first proposed by O. Henry Sy and R. H. Bioeconomics of Construction, and is convenient in applying the theory of reciprocal figures to the computation of stresses on frames. 34. Reciprocal figures. J. Clark Maxwell gave Phil. Mag. 1864 The following definition of reciprocal figures, two plane figures are reciprocal when they consist of an equal number of lines so that corresponding lines in the two figures are parallel, and corresponding lines which converge to a point in one figure form a closed polygon in the other, let a frame without redundant members, and the external forces which keep it in equilibrium, be represented by a diagram constituting one of these two plane figures. Then the lines in the other plane figure or the reciprocal will represent in direction and magnitude the forces between the joints of the frame, and, consequently, the stress on each member, as will now be explained. Reciprocal figures are easily drawn by following definite rules, and afford therefore a simple method of computing the stresses on members of a frame. The external forces on a frame or bridge in equilibrium under those forces may, by a well-known proposition in statics, be represented by a closed polygon, each side of which is parallel to a one force, and represents the force in magnitude as well as in direction. The sides of the polygon may be arranged in any order, 
provided care is taken so to draw them that in passing round the polygon in one direction this direction may for each side correspond to the direction of the force which it represents. This polygon of forces may, by a slight extension of the above definition, be called the reciprocal figure of the external forces. If the sides are arranged in the same order as that of the joints on which they act, so that if the joints and forces be numbered 1, 2, 3, 4, and C, passing round the outside of the frame in one direction, and returning at last to joint 1, then in the polygon the side representing the force 2 will be next the side representing the force 1, and will be followed by the side representing the force 3, and so forth. V.04 P.0555 This polygon falls under the definition of a reciprocal figure given by Clerk Maxwell. If we consider the frame as a point in equilibrium under the external forces, figure 66 shows a frame supported at the two end joints, and loaded at each top joint. The loads and the supporting forces are indicated by arrows. Figure 67A shows the reciprocal figure or polygon for the external forces on the assumption that the reactions are slightly inclined. The lines in figure 67A lettered in the usual manner, correspond to the forces indicated by arrows in figure 66, and lettered according to Bow's method, when all the forces are vertical, as will be the case in girders, the polygon of external forces will be reduced to two straight lines, figure 67B superimposed and divided so that the length X represents the load X, the length AB the load AB, the length YX the reaction YX, and so forth. The line XZ consists of a series of lengths, as XA, AB, DZ, representing the loads taken in their order. In subsequent diagrams the two reaction lines will, for the sake of clearness, be drawn as if slightly inclined to the vertical. If there are no redundant members in the frame there will be only two members abutting at the point of support, for these two members will be sufficient to balance the reaction. Whatever its direction may be, we can therefore draw two triangles each having as one side the reaction YX, and having the two other sides parallel to these two members, each of these triangles will represent a polygon of forces in equilibrium at the point of support, of these two triangles, shown in figure 67C select that in which the letters X and Y are so placed that naming the apex of the triangle eagle lines XE and Y are the lines parallel to the two members of the same name in the frame figure 66, then the triangle YXE is the reciprocal figure of the three lines YX, XE, EY in the frame, and represents the three forces in equilibrium at the point YXE of the frame. The direction of YX, being a thrust upwards, shows the direction in which we must go round the triangle YXE to find the direction of the two other forces. Doing this we find that the force XE must act down towards the point YXE, and the force EY away from the same point. Putting arrows on the frame diagram to indicate the direction of the forces. We see that the member EY must pull and therefore act as a tie, and that the member XE must push and act as a strut. Passing to the point XEFM we find two known forces, the load XA acting downwards, and a push from the strut XE, which, being in compression, must push at both ends, as indicated by the arrow. Figure 66. The directions and magnitudes of these two forces are already drawn figure 67 in a fitting position to represent part of the polygon of forces at XEFA beginning with the upward thrust example continuing down XA, and drawing AF parallel to AF in the frame we complete the polygon by drawing F parallel to F in the frame. The point F is determined by the intersection of the two lines, one beginning at A and the other at E. We then have the polygon of forces EXAF, the reciprocal figure of the lines meeting at that point in the frame, 
and representing the forces at the point x a if the direction of the forces on a and x a being known determines the direction of the forces due to the elastic reaction of the members a if and f showing a if to push as a strut while f is a tie we have been guided in the selection of the particular quadrilateral adopted by the rule of arranging the order of the sides so that the same letters indicate corresponding sides in the diagram of the frame and its reciprocal continuing the construction of the diagram in the same way we arrive at figure 67d as the complete reciprocal figure of the frame and forces upon it and we see that each line in the reciprocal figure measures the stress on the corresponding member in the frame and that the polygon of forces acting at any point as ijk in the frame is represented by a polygon of the same name in the reciprocal figure the direction of the force in each member is easily ascertained by proceeding in the manner above described a single known force in a polygon determines the direction of all the others, as these must all correspond with arrows pointing the same way round the polygon. Let the arrows be placed on the frame round each joint, and so as to indicate the direction of each force on that joint, then when two arrows point to one another on the same piece, that piece is a tie, when they point from one another the piece is a strut. It is hardly necessary to say that the forces exerted by the two ends of any one member must be equal and opposite. This method is universally applicable where there are no redundant members. The reciprocal figure for any loaded frame is a complete formula for the stress on every member of a frame of that particular class with loads on given joints. Consider a Warren girder figure 68. Loaded at the top and bottom joints. Figure 69B is the polygon of external forces. And 69C is half the reciprocal figure. The complete reciprocal figure is shown in figure 69A. The method of sections already described is often more convenient than the method of reciprocal figures, and the method of influence lines is also often the readiest way of dealing with braced girders. 35. Chain loaded uniformly along a horizontal line. If the lengths of the links be assumed indefinitely short, the chain under given simple distributions of load will take the form of comparatively simple mathematical curves known as catenaries. The true catenary is that assumed by a chain of uniform weight per unit of length but the form generally adopted for suspension bridges is that assumed by a chain under a weight uniformly distributed relatively to a horizontal line. This curve is a parabola. Remembering that in this case the center bending moment sigma WL will be equal to WL squared 8. We see that the horizontal tension H at the vertex for a span L the points of support being at equal heights is given by the expression 1. H WL squared 8 Y. Or, calling X the distance from the vertex to the point of support hwx squared 2y. The value of h is equal to the maximum tension on the bottom flange, or compression on the top flange, of a girder of equal span, equally and similarly loaded, and having a depth equal to the dip of the suspension bridge, from the vertex. The horizontal component of the resultant tangent to the curve will be unaltered, the vertical component v will be simply the sum of the loads between o and f or wx, in the triangle fdc. Let fd be tangent to the curve fc vertical, and dc horizontal, these three sides will necessarily be proportional respectively to the resultant tension along the chain at f the vertical force v passing through the point d and the horizontal tension at o, hence h, v dc, fc wx squared 2y, wxx2, y hence dc is the half of oc, proving the curve to be a parabola, the value of or the tension at any point at a distance x from the vertex is obtained from the equation r squared h squared v squared w squared x 44 y squared w squared x squared or 2 
rwx root 1x squared for y squared. Let i be the angle between.